It could in like manner retard the dawn, sadden noon, anticipate the frowning of storms scarcely generated, and intensify the opacity of a moonless midnight to a cause of shaking dread. In fact, precisely at this transitional point of its nightly roll into darkness, the great and particular glory of the Egdon Waste began, and nobody could be said to understand the heath who hadn't been there at such a time. It could best be felt when it couldn't clearly be seen, its complete effect and explanation lying in this and the succeeding hours before the next dawn. Then, and only then, did it tell its true tale. The spot was, indeed, a near relation of night, and when night showed itself, an apparent tendency to gravitate together could be perceived in its shades and the scene. The sombre stretch of rounds and hollows seemed to rise and meet the evening gloom in pure sympathy, the heath exhaling darkness as rapidly as the heavens precipitated it. And so the obscurity in the air and the obscurity in the land closed together in a black fraternization towards which each advanced halfway. The place became full of a watchful intentness now, for when other things sank brooding to sleep, the heath appeared slowly to awake and listen. Every night its titanic form seemed to await something. But it had waited thus unmoved during so many centuries, through the crises of so many things, that it could only be imagined to await one last crisis, the final overthrow. It was a spot which returned upon the memory of those who loved it with an aspect of peculiar and kindly congruity. Smiling champagnes of flowers and fruit hardly do this, for they're permanently harmonious only with an existence of better reputation as to its issues than the present. Twilight, combined with the scenery of Egdon Heath, to evolve a thing majestic without severity, impressive without showiness, emphatic in its admonitions, grand in its simplicity. The qualifications which frequently invest the façade of a prison with far more dignity than is found in the façade of a palace double its size lent to this heath a sublimity in which spots renowned for beauty of the accepted kind are utterly wanting. Fair prospects wed happily with fair times, but alas if times be not fair. Men have often suffered from the mockery of a place too smiling for their reason than from the oppression of surroundings over-sadly tinged. Haggard Egdon appealed to a subtler and scarcer instinct, to a more recently learnt emotion than that which responds to the sort of beauty called charming and fair. Indeed, it is a question if the exclusive reign of this orthodox beauty is not approaching its last quarter. The new veil of Tempe may be a gaunt waste in Thule. Human souls may find themselves in closer and closer harmony with external things, wearing a somberness distasteful to our race when it was young. The time seems near, if it's not actually arrived, 
when the chastened sublimity of a moor, a sea, or a mountain will be all of nature that is absolutely in keeping with the moods of the more thinking among mankind. And ultimately, to the common tourist, spots like Iceland may become what the vineyards and myrtle gardens of South Europe are to him now. And Heidelberg and Baden be passed unheeded as he hastens from the Alps to the sand dunes of Skvernigen. The most thoroughgoing ascetic could feel that he had a natural right to wander on Egdon. He was keeping within the line of legitimate indulgence when he laid himself open to influences such as these. Colours and beauties so far subdued were at least the birthright of all. Only in summer days of highest feather did its mood touch the level of gaiety.